Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. So welcome to this YouTube video. This is going to be a interview conversation with Paul Wheaton in Missoula, Montana, and one of his property mates, uh, Des Deshane, will also have a little input here. Paul, I've known of for maybe 10 or 15 years. Uh, he's in a slightly different part of the, of the Northwest, but we've crossed paths a couple of times. And I, of course, I've known about one of his primary, uh, projects is permies.com, perhaps the most extensive website for people interacting, talking about permaculture anywhere. We'll hear a little bit more about that. But Paul lives in a rural area and he, has just so many different projects going on, and they're all about living more consciously, producing more from local sources, uh, permaculture. So what we're going to do is have a little conversation with Paul, and we hope you enjoy it. So let's start off with a, a, a physical question, Paul. What exactly is your homestead? Just Without great detail, describe what you have going on there. That's kind of your home base right there. Tell us about your place. Uh, we have a couple hundred acres. Uh, it's divided into two properties. Uh, uh, a smaller property, which we call Base Camp, which has like normal homestead stuff that you'd expect from anybody living in the country. Like, you know, electricity <laughs> and Internet. Um uh, and then there's this other property that's completely off grid. That one's uh, much larger, and uh, but it has uh, it has lovely, luscious, deep soils. Uh, whereas the first property is like one giant rock. Uh, it just happened. I mean, we're in the Rocky Mountains. You're gonna you're gonna find some rock once in a while, and in one in giant pieces. And we're on a piece of giant rock making up the Rocky Mountains. Um, but the other property, uh, which we call the lab. Uh, that one has, has magnificently deep alluvial soils. Uh, it's, uh, it wouldn't, it's, when you're there, it's a jungle of, of, uh, trees. It, uh, everything grows so thick, which is a little unusual in the Rocky Mountains because, you know, the rock thing. So the alluvial soils really help to get magnificent things. And then we've, uh, so we do a lot of experimenting um, with permaculture stuff. Uh, I, I, you know what? I'm not sure of anybody doing more experiments than we are. I hope there are. But we do a lot of experimenting. Uh, up on the lab, um, some of the experiments include uh, the Wafati, which is where we've got our own natural building style using materials from the land. Um, and we hope to be able to create something. This will be the, the first big test this year, this upcoming year, uh, of the annualized thermal inertia. So we hope to be able to heat a home in Montana with nothing but the heat from the summer. So we will collect the heat from the summer uh, completely passively and uh, hold on to that through the winter. So uh, annualized thermal inertia. Uh, uh, that's one of our experiments this year, and uh, we're working on uh, the foundations built by people like John Haight, who is the author of the uh, Passive Annual Heat Storage book. And so he's done some things in Missoula along those lines. Um, we also are just now wrapping up uh, the construction of our Wafati greenhouse, which is where uh, we have a thoroughly passive greenhouse that, that we've uh, constructed, and we're going to be testing the temperatures of that. And we're hoping to keep very high temperatures in a greenhouse without letting it get too warm. So the uh, the whole system is designed, because like greenhouses, they'll get too warm, and we have a system in place to passively be able to bring the uh, too warm temperatures down into the earth without a fan, without any electricity whatsoever, 
and then store it there for use in uh, in the wintertime when it gets a little too cold. So tell us a little bit about what this boot camp is. Where does that fit in, your boot camp? So uh, uh, people uh, come out here. Uh, they, they part with 100 bucks. Uh, we put them on a waiting list, and then they uh, when they come out, they can be here for they have to commit to at least a week. But uh, we've got Des on the phone with us now. Uh, he's one of our commanders in the boot camp. And uh, Des, I think you've been here ten months. Is that right? Ten months, correct. All right. And so um, uh, I think right now we have more than a dozen people here in the boot camp. And uh, uh, I think that uh, most of those people are going to be uh, attending the PDC that starts in a couple of days. Oh, look, there you go. I mean, how many people is that? That's more than a dozen, isn't it? Um, so uh, uh, people come out. They um, uh, they get to experience different kinds of permaculture projects uh, throughout the week. And on the weekends, uh, they can do their own permaculture projects. Uh, we call it uh, soul labor. You can do whatever soul labor you want on the weekends. Um, and then during the week, uh, there's going to be a lot of natural building and gardening and um, I don't know, uh, Des. Like, what did you uh, what did you work on the last few days? Um, just today, I was working on gardening. Yesterday, I was working on building the solarium. Um, yeah, it's it, it. The time is interesting here. It's there's a lot of things we do. It seems like the time is moving both fast and slow at the same time. I don't know how how to describe it. It's fun. I'm having a fun time. Oh, good. Oh, good. So, um, uh, all right. There's I I don't know. We've got uh, we've got a list of probably 200 projects we want to work on, and we've got them in priority order. So we chip away at the top of the list. And um, I don't know. You, you you had a picture up there for a second. I could see uh, where where people were working on the berm shed. Uh, so basically, we made a massive shed, which holds 1,500 square feet. Uh, I think the total materials cost on that was 500 bucks. Uh, most of it is uh, trees, and um, and there's uh, uh, a little bit of rocks. I mean, but trees and rocks we have plenty of. There you can see them putting the the dirt on the top. And the, uh, the the left side there, you can see uh, Allerton Abbey, where this guy is. Uh, he's kind of putting an alder leaf uh, in cob over over that. And I gotta say too, like you know, so Jan, you're in Oregon. I've been to a lot of natural building sites in Oregon, and a lot of those sites, it's like, okay, well, we got clay, but we had to have a dump truck deliver a load of sand. Whereas we're really fortunate in that we have. Way too many trees, and uh, also we have four different kinds of sand and three different kinds of clay, and so we don't need to import sand or import clay mm-hmm. or import wood. We've got all the wood and and all the natural building materials we need, including rocks. So I know Des, you've been playing with rocks. Oh, and I saw you moving a couple of huge logs around um, yesterday. Okay. That's right. Okay. Let me let me just kind of shift a little bit here. Um, that looks like a permaculture summer camp kind of a location. People are learning skills. Uh, it looks like a really good time because I've seen some of the other images, and it looks like an awesomely fun time. You also, Paul, have got a lot of other projects. You've done podcasts. You've written a book. Uh, you've done a TED Talk. You've made presentations and interviews. Let me just ask you, in your life, in your bio, what has caused you to move into this realm of, of education and concern, concern for the planet, uh, changing the world? Just give us a little bit of a bio. Uh, you were a software engineer. Maybe you're still doing some of that. But what you're doing now is a lot different than software engineering. What's made an impact on your life to cause you to do what you're doing right now? I think a lot of it comes from the age of the newspaper. A long time ago, you'd read the newspaper, and 
it's like you would read about these horrible problems and you might get some ideas about what I like what could you do personally? There there are people truly suffering. And it's kinda like I, I feel like I'm I'm doing my worky job and I'm it's like I feel like there's there's so little I can do, but as you read as you would read the newspaper, which is a non interactive thing, I mean it's so different than today. What can I do? What could I do? And it's usually it's nothing, but you kind of fester on it. Then then comes the thought of like, if this horrible thing I'm reading about happened over there, surely somewhere in my future it could happen to me. What could I do to better prepare to whatever? So it's like, how do I how do I help others? How do I protect myself and the people I care about? Things of that nature. Um. And then as the years passed... In what years, what, what time frame are we talking about here? Oh, man, I mean, decades ago. Many, I mean, I'm talking about the era. That, it must have been the 90s, even pre-90s. But uh, uh, I, um, I heard the word permaculture. Well, anyway, I started gardening. I, I became obsessed with gardening. Absolutely bonkers about gardening. And where were you living at this time? Missoula. Missoula, okay, Montana. You're, you're, a, you're a local person. So then uh, I do that, and then I keep hearing about all these horrible things that are happening, and, and you try to think of what all can, you can do. The obsession with gardening happens, and then at some point in time, I start to get the idea of how for so many of these problems that I am wrapping my head around and reading about in the newspaper – I'm getting the idea of, like, how to be safe, how to help others. Like, the solution to nearly everything is homesteading and permaculture, I believe. And and it's like I'm sure that there are many other philosophies out there, but I kind of feel like um, when you talk about uh, people starving, then it's, it's like, well, if they lived somewhere where there were massive gardens or the opportunity to, to do wildcrafting, uh, then it's, it's plausible that the starving would be either mitigated or non-existent. Um, as we start talking about war and pollution, most of that's tied to energy. And so it's like, how do, how might we live a more luxuriant life while simultaneously using a tiny fraction of the energy that we use now. Um, and then, of course, we are, there's the appeal of off-grid, but a lot of times the cost of off-grid is greater than being on-grid. And, and the things that we replace are not necessarily pure. They're not perfect. They're not, so it's kind of like, again, it comes back to like, if we can reduce our energy needs to a tiny speck, and 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 live a more luxuriant life with that, that would be more of a so I'm starting to think you're asking me like where did I get this? And I gotta say that I kept evolving and evolving and evolving and it was in two thousand four I was working a contract for a company called Digital Globe, which does the satellite photography for Google Earth. So I was one of the architects for those systems. Um and um while I was there I got the idea of like how if I could infect hundreds of millions of brains with permaculture and permaculture would become a more household word, a lot of these global problems would just get to be small and eventually shrivel up and blow away and things would be better. It's the knowledge is the problem. Getting all of this permaculture stuff into the brains of the of, of average people. That's the thing. And I tried to talk to permaculture leaders at the time, but they were all caught up in their own projects. That's when I realized that if it's going to happen, that I would need to quit my career and pursue this myself. Yeah, you gained a real passion for this. So how um, did you first connect with permaculture? I had 80 acres out on Mount Spokane, and I, my mind was overflowing with ideas of things I wanted to try. So I was trying all of these things. And a neighbor came by and uh, 
I was telling him all about all the things I'm experimenting with and all the things I'm trying. And, uh, and he said, well, that's permaculture. And I said, well, what's permaculture? So uh, he had the big black book, uh, the designer's manual by Bill Mollison, and loaned it to me. And I'm reading through this book, and I'm seeing that uh, all these things I thought I'd invented, somebody invented before me. <laughs> and there's a bunch of other stuff I'd never thought of. Sure, yeah. And, and so then I bought every book there was on permaculture and read them all and got a bunch of movies and, and stuff that were, uh, you know, VHS was the thing back then. Uh, DVDs hadn't quite come out yet. And so I got those, and one of those was from Sepp Holzer, and I got super obsessed with the way Sepp Holzer did it. And uh, uh, eventually, I uh, got my—I went to my first PDC in 2004. Um, and uh, uh, so you asked, how did I learn? So there's, there's you go. There's how I got started in permaculture. Yeah, no, that's really good. That's very good. So what that's led to is all kinds of initiatives um, I just briefly listed before. Let's take a, a, a short look at your different initiatives. Um, you mentioned that the knowledge is there. Imagine that you were doing all these experiments and then found out this has already been done and people have even gone further than this. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. So you have been reaching out to the wider world in a lot of different ways. Let's just let's just touch on a few of those ways. Tell us what permies.com is. So I created some forums uh, a long, long time ago, and um, I kind of, I mean, part of it was, is like, how do I reach hundreds of millions of people? And at the same time, I was getting so many emails asking questions, I wasn't able to keep up. So I created the forums, so that way... Uh, I'm answering these questions just once instead of over and over and over again in email. And, uh, um, well, it's gotten really big. So now there's 1.8 million people each month, and I think 25 million. Myself people. included. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that the, the information there is big. I think we now have, I think it's 200 forums there. On so 200 different topics, I guess 200 different, and there's like uh, I think we're at 150,000 threads now, 150,000 threads of conversation. Um, so it's so, a convergence zone online for all different aspects of permaculture and uh, ecological living. Uh, we refer to it as a perennial discussion. So a lot of online stuff today is like talk about. This and then we're going to flush this conversation down the toilet in 24 hours. Whereas at Permies, it's like, no, here's a thread that was started 12 years ago to wow. talk about black locust, and it's like people are still adding to this black locust thread. And it's like, uh, so we do it perennial discussion. Um, I, I think it's working out quite well. There's a lot of persistent knowledge, but we are. I think you know before everybody jumps races out there, you got to know it's heavily moderated. Um, and, uh, I will get people who will pop in there and, uh, they're, you know, they bring their hostility and we, it gets deleted like within minutes hmm. and, uh, whether it's, it's a commercial hostility, but in the permaculture movement itself, there can be some, some pretty serious hostility. People saying like, that's not permaculture. And what they mean by that is like, uh, they did it one way, therefore no one's allowed to do it another way. Yeah. Um, and so we, we embrace that there are many schools of thought under the permaculture umbrella and we don't allow people to speak the truth. We, we only allow people to state their position. And uh, there's some people that come to us and say, that's not the way forums work. And we ban them. And it turns out to be that our forum does work the way that we say it works. Uh, it's got to be massive. And uh, and it's like there are people where they want it to be something other than what it is. And we encourage them to start their own forum. So, Yeah, that's permies.com. People can go online and find that, permies.com. It's easy to find. Yeah. You wrote a book called Building a Better World in Your Backyard. What's that about? So just to, just to be clear, the full title is, Building a better world in your backyard instead of being angry at bad guys. 
Um, and and it's like, and then the people who make it their life to be angry at bad guys, they hate our book. They're it's like whenever it gets mentioned, they're like, you know, hey, we got to be angry at the bad guys. There's there's no other way. There's nothing you could say in this book. Yeah, because being angry at the bad guys is the only way to go. So, um, I I read the the Derek Jensen book, uh, the one that's something like uh, just just as, a, just as an aside, Derek Jensen being an anarchist with a particular worldview. So go ahead. <laughs> yes, what a polite way of putting it. Yes, <laughs> uh, but he makes so many good points, and so he's got that one book called, I think it's called 50 Ways to Stay in Denial as the World Burns. And uh, he makes such powerful, compelling points that basically in it he's very smart guy. If if we follow the recipe, and he uses the example of an inconvenient truth, and so it's like we do everything in that movie, it reduces, and if everybody in the United States did everything mentioned in the movie, it would cut our collective carbon footprint by 22%. But our collective carbon footprint grows by 2% a year, so in 11 years, we're back to where we started from, and now there's nothing else we could do. So I felt like the thing to do is, is like, I wanted to make a book that did much better than 22%. And, and I, think, I think that my book goes well into the thousands of percents, um, and it doesn't require everybody to do it. And, and so... It's like, let's get right down to it. I'm going to do, I'm going to go, I'm going to mention things that are way beyond anything that Al Gore thought of in that. And it does seem like there's all these movies that come out and they're saying, oh man, we are so screwed. <laughs> we're all going to die. And it's like, all you can do is buy light bulbs and that's it. We're all going to die. And I kind of feel like, uh, you know what? There is so much more we can do. There's there's lists and lists and lists of things that these movies never mention. Okay, so uh, you're you're really uh, into a realm that that I have a great interest in too. What are some of the the things people could do? Um, I haven't read the book, but I'm sure <laughs> that the the locations that this could apply to could be rural, could be urban, could be suburban. Uh, we're talking about lifestyle and consuming habits. What are some of the highlights of what people can do in their own lives that you describe in the book to reduce eco footprints? So let's let's talk about uh, the average carbon footprint per adult in the United States is thirty tons. And and that's direct and indirect. And a lot of people want to try and push a bunch of it off to industry. But you know what? If you stop buying those things, that industry shrivels up and goes away. Own that part of the industry. So 30 tons. Let's start there. 30 tons, both direct and indirect. That's your whole package, including the industry that you're responsible for. So we start at 30 tons. Now, the next thing is, and this is like the number one thing, if you heat your home, if you live in a cold climate now, and, and you live in Eugene, Oregon, and it's cold enough, but I wouldn't call it a cold climate. Like where I live in Montana, I'm going to call that a cold climate. If you heat with electricity and you live in a cold climate, here in Montana, at the very least, your carbon footprint is... 29 tons. So so your overall carbon footprint is going to be higher than the American average. So the number one thing I say is if you look in a cold climate, look at your heat. Now, the very next thing that happens is, is that people are kind of thinking to themselves like, I don't want to be cold, you know, and it's like, okay, I'm with you. And so their the first thought is I'm going to switch to natural gas. And it's like, well, Natural gas, uh, that will reduce about 65% of your carbon footprint, but now you've introduced other environmental disasters. But it's like, okay, you know, that's a way. But let's talk about ways to get it even better. Now, of course, if you go past the solar, you got to build a whole nother home. So I've listed uh, three, that's what my, so you mentioned my TED Talk earlier. My TED Talk, I, I mentioned three different things. One of them is about heating the people in your home instead of heating the whole house. With that alone, you can eliminate 90% of your electric heat bill. Is that, is that like putting on more layers? 
I'm not even, I didn't even touch that. You can put on more layers if you want. That would help. But it doesn't help very much, but it would help. I mean, in fact, my book is only about, everything in the book is how, how to make your life more luxuriant while simultaneously doing things that are better for the environment. So I think that a lot of people start talking about the environment and it's like, you must make sacrifice. You must suffer for the environment. And my book is like, no, you don't. Nope, nope, nope. I, we could do so much better and have a more luxuriant life. So everything um, in the book is about adding luxury and doing things good for the environment. Yeah, now, I, I would. Um, we, we don't have time to go into great detail, but luxury is kind of in the eye of the beholder. What you absolutely. consider what you consider luxury, I could probably relate to because we're we're on the same page. But uh, somebody living in a penthouse in Manhattan, up on the ninety eighth floor, uh, they've got a different idea about luxury. Oh no! I and I encourage them to live their most luxuriant life. And I, at the same time, hope that they'll read my book and then they'll find nine things in there that they think will add more luxury to their life. And it just so happens to be that those nine things are also going to make the, you know, improve things environmentally. So no, I'm going to say you are, you are 100% correct. In the eye of the beholder, it's subjective. And at the same time, rather than, like, chasing people with sticks and yelling at them and attempting to shame them into a path of environmentalism, I wish to bait them instead with more luxury. And it's like, no, no, you don't have to do this, but me and Jan are going to do it. And when you see us doing it, you're going to be like, I want some of that. Give me some of that. And right, so, that, that's that's kind of the, uh, it's been stated in several different ways by different famous people, but in order to see the changes we want to see, we have to show that what we're doing is more fun and that other people want to do it, not necessarily by being critical of them, but showing that permaculture offers all these benefits. So can I make your home warmer? Can I make you so warm that you're turning down the thermostat? Can I can I introduce something to you that costs nothing and it makes your life so warm and so luxuriant that you're turning the thermostat down so you can be more comfortable? And and then it turns out to be that you have cut twenty nine tons of carbon out of your footprint. And thus reduce the average carbon footprint for all of the United States. Because if everybody in a cold climate did this, then rather than saying it's 30 tons on average, it'll be a little more like 25 tons on average. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to read your book about that. But heating isn't the only issue. Urban design, uh, I live in a suburban area and have a great interest in urban design. The, the automobile culture um factory farms uh what diet these are other huge aspects of the pie chart of our carbon ecological footprint's got a lot of slices in it and and heating is only one of them and the food we eat the food choices and uh to a very large degree our transportation choices we all know that uh, automobiles have a oversized location, uh, position in our transportation pie chart. So do you address these issues too, these different aspects of lifestyle? Not only do I address these in my book, but I'm about to explode as you're saying them. And I, it's like there's, there's, so let's, let's start with food. Um, first of all, I want to make it clear food is uh, for the average American, food is 35% of their footprint, which I believe ends up being about 10.5 tons. Uh, there is some misinformation out there that the standard American diet is um, 51%, and that was actually uh, uh, kind of like uh, uh, transposing some numbers. It's actually, it was 15%. So switching from uh, a standard American diet 
to a vegan diet actually reduces your carbon footprint by 15%, not 51%, as has been misreported. But uh, the thing I wish to powerfully advocate for, because if you're if you're buying your food from a grocery store, that comes with a pretty significant carbon footprint to get it to you, as well as the carbon footprint that's involved in you going and getting it and bringing it home. Um, and then on top of that, for example, the vegan diet is, is like there's a, a collection of beautiful values that come with a vegan diet. And the, uh, idea is, is like, I don't want, I don't want beautiful creatures to die in the name of feeding me. But if it's farmed at a factory, then, um, that, like all those carrots were grown in a giant field, a monocrop field. And then a giant machine went and dug all those carrots out of the ground and killed all kinds of animals along the way. The, and so it's kind of like um, those, those are contrary to the values of the vegans. However, if you're a vegan and you grow your food out of a garden, then – and it's right there. You can – if you can get to have like 90% of your food needs met from your garden – then uh, not only have you met your values of not hurting uh, beautiful things, but on top of that, your carbon footprint for all of that food has been eliminated. And so it's kind of like, no, it's, it's the garden. It's the garden is the key. Now, I think another thing you have to embrace is the stuff about paddock shift systems and how they actually reverse carbon footprint. And, and it's like, now, granted, a CAFO is a nightmare. But um, uh, the the paddock shift systems actually reduce it. It's, it's difficult to do a paddock shift system if you're in an urban environment, like you know. But people have done it. Uh, it's wackadoodle, but it can be done. Uh, so food systems, yes, I've got so much to say. But let me, if you don't mind, Jan, I'm going to to jump in, and you're talking about uh, how about cars. And you're right, cars have a carbon footprint. Cars have a carbon footprint on average of four tons per year. And if you switch to an all-electric car like a Tesla, that'll go from four tons per year down to two tons per year. And so I just kind of feel like a lot of people feel like if I switch to a Tesla, I've solved all of my carbon footprint stuff. And it's like, no, yeah, put a tiny dent in it. And uh, heat is going to make a much bigger difference. Food will make a much bigger difference. But uh, let's – I want to explore this with you for just a moment because in my book, what I'm trying to say is exactly – I'm trying to address your exact concerns. Um, and, and what I'm trying to say is, like, can I make a place that's so wonderful that the people that live there enjoy it so much that they just choose to not go away for a day? Or every day, or whatever. They're they're so comfortable. And and in my book, I I try to outlay, I try to to describe a scenario of community living. And granted, that's got problems to be solved. But let's suppose that we've solved them. And and so then there's people living in this community, and um they have they each have a vehicle. Oh, and they have the worst vehicles. Jen, you'd be so angry to look at their vehicles. Oh, gas guzzling and polluting and old and not tuned up. They're terrible vehicles, huge vehicles, enormous vehicles. But they're parked like most of them haven't moved in three months because they're getting all of their needs met where they are and they don't feel like getting in their car and going anywhere. They could go anytime that they want, but they just don't feel like it. So now, without making a law requiring them to live a certain way and encouraging them to live their most luxuriant life, we have created an environment where we just don't drive. Yeah, yeah, I'm all in favor of that. Um, it's no mystery why so many people like to go on vacation uh, with some big eco footprint to some distant place because our urban places where people live are oftentimes 
the, the surrounding vibe and the context, most people would want to take a break from that because it's concrete, it's parking lots, it's cars, it's noise, it's polluted air. So what you're describing, I'm going to have to read your book to see <laughs> what, you're, what you're describing because it sounds good to me. I want to ask you a question about another project that yep. you have. And uh, that one is the whole idea. I think the acronym is SKIP. And basically, that's this idea of, in our country, farmers are an aging population. And a lot of kids of farmers don't want to farm. The farmer is wondering, what am I going to do with my farm? I'd love to see all this work that I've made and, and spent my life. Uh, I'd like to see it passed on and continued somehow. And SKIP is a way to connect people interested in farming with somebody who would like to have somebody continue with their farm. So explain SKIP to us. I I, I love to, in order to describe this, the easiest way is um, my friend Mike Ayler. I'm, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the works of Mike Ayler. Don't know him. Uh, so uh, he's the author of the $50 Enough Underground House book, a uh, great natural building guy, genius, really, genius. And he uh, he lived a few hours away from me before he died. But before he died, he was calling me every two months, begging me to give him the name of somebody who could be worthy and he could will his land to them um, because he felt like his time was coming. And uh, and uh, uh, that's, a, that's a whole other story down there. But the thing is, is that, I've I've actually talked to dozens of people. I mean, it's weird that I spent so much of my life in software engineering with the idea that someday I'm going to save up enough money and buy land and be able to, like, go and do the homesteading thing. And then once I'm there, I start running into all these super old people who want to give me their land, complete with two houses, a tractor, and all this stuff, and I'm kind of like, I can't take care of two properties. Um, and and they like, offer you their properties. Dozens of times. <laughs> dozens of times. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. And, and they're like, okay, so I'm not going to do it. And I said, if you gave it to me, I would just liquidate it just like either your kids or somebody in your family and take the money and do my own thing. And so what you want is somebody who's going to, you know, continue on and not just sell it and uh, you're like yeah that's what i want and and it's like okay they're saying so who is that i don't know (laughs) 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 it's like i've been looking for somebody for years and and it's like so anyway mike was kind of like that and he would bring in interns but there was such a gap between what he needed and what they brought to the table and they were glad to ramp up, but Mike wasn't the guy to teach him how to ramp up. And and so then they just fell short, and then they would all leave either by their own volition or by Mike saying go or whatever. I mean, I'm sure you've worked with some intern people before. Some are great and some not so much. And uh, But it's like he wanted somebody that was not going to just, like, be there – like like the the interns that he knew were people that needed guidance and and what he needed was somebody that didn't need guidance and and it's like so how do you get to that to be that person and it's like it comes from time and doing stuff yeah so i really felt for mike and all these other people that have asked basically the same thing from me and i just it was grinding in my head for years and then I came up with this idea because the other thing is is that um, uh, in permaculture you can go get a PDC, but it's it's so now you're a certified permaculture designer, and it's kind of like oh that sounds really cool, but after two weeks you're a certified permaculture designer, and it's like let's let's look at your design and it's like crayons huh, and it's like uh, it's it's I mean it's I really got to recommend a PDC, an in-person PDC. They are magnificent and glorious. They are just soul-feeding. Oh, they're so good to go to. 
But yeah, I got it. I mean, Toby Hemingway, rest in peace. He also felt strongly that it's like we need something that's more. And and it's like and the funny thing is, is that both Toby and Mike Ayler died at the at the same time as Bill Mollison. All three of them, all at about the same time. And um, and I kind of felt like Toby had a really good point, and I kind of want to do this thing. And so it came to me, what if we kind of made something kind of like a PDC, but it was a little bit more substantial, like it's all hands-on stuff, because that's what Mike wants. Mike wants to see somebody who's built some stuff. And maybe grown some gardens and gotten some stuff done. He wants to know, because for every person that actually did it, there's probably 20 out there that are saying they did it and they didn't. And so he can't tell the difference between the people that really did it and the people that, that are just talking the talk, you know. And so uh, the next thing I thought is, like, well, it would be good if it was free, and if it could be done totally free. So, so we came up with the earliest versions of Skip, I don't know, like seven years ago, and we've built it and built it and built it. And in the last couple of years, we've had tons of people doing this stuff. So basically, there's these little tasks. We call them BBs. You do, and I think to get PEP1 certified, you do about 80 BBs. And then for PEP2, it's like a, the, all the BBs are far more significant. And they're bigger. It's bigger stuff. So you have a, a qualification, a rating system for how much uh, accomplished a person, uh, skills a person gains to qualify them to be connected with a farmer looking for somebody to take over his place. I would, so basically, you're going to do all these little things. And when you've done enough, then it's, you're, you, you are now PEP1 certified. And then you keep doing more things, and then you're PEP2 certified. Now, it takes about two to four weeks to get PEP1 certified. It should take about three or four months to get PEP2 certified. And where would you be learning this? What's the location? Um, the, the PEP stuff is designed for a cold climate um, in environments similar to where I am. And um, But uh, dominantly at home or on land that you can work something out with somebody. We have come up with um, P1 certification, which is something that could be done by anybody, including people living in apartments. Um, but that's another story for another day. The key is is that we've got PEP1, PEP2, PEP3, PEP4, and PEP4 is going to be a good three- or four-year kind of thing. Um, and, and really what we're shooting for is PEP4 to be able to inherit land. But at this moment, I believe so far we we have one person that's gotten PEP one. I believe that the first person to get PEP two will have at least twenty offers for land. Hmm. There's there's that much interest. Uh, yeah. And, and people retiring. I mean, my own, my own permaculture property here. I, uh, when I was reading about this for the first time, and it's something I've talked about with other people. I'm a, I'm a senior myself and uh, quite capable at the present time, but nobody lasts forever. I think there should be a suburban permaculture version of what you're talking about. You know, who is well, going to continue doing the stuff here on my property? So uh, it's a good model. Well, we've got it all set up so that way um, um, PEP and P are subsets of PECs. And so PEP is going to be permaculture experience according to Paul. And then, <laughs> and the reason why we had to do that is, is because the world of permaculture is just far too massive. And so it's like, okay. So this is going to be my school of thought out of thousands of schools of thought, and it's going to be in a cold climate, which is what I'm focused on. And so it's going to be stuff that could be done at my place or in other places that are similar to my place. Um, but we set it up as a subset of PECs. The idea being is that there could be PEJ, and so it's going to be a permaculture experience according to Jan. And – Yours is going to be similar, but there's going to be a lot of stuff that's going to be a little bit more urban and suburban. And, and it's going to be a little bit more garden intensive. Uh, the natural building is probably not going to be as massive as the natural building that we do here. 
um, uh, things of that nature. But you you might have a a template that could be applied, the structure, and even some of the actual content would be very similar, but then it would be, uh, the application would be uh, Maritime Pacific Northwest, or it could be uh, subtropical Houston, Texas. People around the country, both in suburban places, but also in the farming context, which you describe, could use what you've already put together and, and customize it for their location. There's, there is that. We're, we're pretty emphatic that the X must be replaced with a human being. Because we've already had a bunch of people saying, like, they wanted to make a PED for deserts. And it's like, no. No, you got to go with Bob, P-E-B, and Bob's idea of what you do in deserts. Because there's going to be, in time, there could be 15 different desert-based pexes, each of them radically different from the others. And so don't, don't, don't be thinking that Bob is the authority on desert stuff. Uh-huh. No, no. No, Bob's just one doofus, and yeah. uh, he's not the the king of all deserts and permaculture. No, he's one person. Yeah, so that's why that. it's PEP, Paul. It's one one doofus, one one putz who's saying this is what I think for this climate. I, yeah. I'm not the ultimate authority on permaculture. I'm not the ultimate authority on cold climate permaculture. I'm just one one theory, one philosophy. Yeah, that kind of. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I just. Uh, where's Where's your American gun to shoot that answering machine? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What you were just saying kind of relates back to the permies dot com. Uh, nobody owns the topic; it's your version of that topic. Yeah, that's really good. Let's move along a little bit. I appreciate that uh, a whole lot, Paul. Let's uh, ask Des a question here. Uh, Des, you have been staying there on site for, what, eight or ten months? Just briefly, because we don't have a lot more time, but just tell us a little bit about your experience there. Um, my experience here in the boot camp uh, has been soul building. Um, the work that I do here, the things I get to experience, um, for example, I came to Wheaton Labs with little to no experience in carpentry. Uh, and then I took on a very, very, very small project to build a one-tier shelf that's about a foot tall and a foot wide as my first carpentry project. It had like eight screws. Um, and uh, I was like, how am I going to do this? <laughs> in the beginning, and after I built it, I got a little more confident, and I built a slightly bigger shelf, and then after that, a slightly bigger shelf, and recently, my the shelf that I built um, has wheels, and people like it. It's about five feet wide, eight feet tall, two feet deep. And it holds all of our uh, regularly used uh, hand tools like shovels, pickaxes. Um, and I'm confident enough now that I can build something bigger. So now I'm working on um, helping with the project to build a solarium, which is a basically a glass room. Yeah. A solar space, yeah. Yeah. Right, a solar space. So how did you find out about the boot camp there? Uh, yes, great question. I I was um, kind of feeling over the money game, so to speak, the consumerism game, and I was looking for an alternative way of um, trading or, I guess, working to um, to live. Uh, I didn't really want to have a whole lot of money in my life anymore. 
I want, one of my goals became to, uh, basically eliminate all of my bills. Um, I'm down to two bills right now. Uh, I used to be at five or more, I think. Um, so I started looking online for ways to live on site where I work. And then I came across, somehow I came across, I found about like 20 different things before I came across the rocket mass heater. Somehow Paul put up a YouTube video of him talking about the rocket mass heater. He mentioned the word efficiency and it just hooked me because I'm all about efficiency. Um, and then I started kind of down the rabbit hole of Paul's channel on YouTube and the other things he had to talk about, which led to uh, some of his other talks like the TED talk. And um, then it led me to permies.com. And once I got to permies.com, I was like, how do I get there? Uh, who is this guy? How do I get there? Does he have, something that maybe I could fit into. And then the boot camp. Um, and I didn't believe it was true because all the other places, um, they were either asking uh, for more experience. Um, and I think some of them were asking for uh, more resources from my end. Um, yeah. And I, I signed up. Somehow I got accepted, or I, you know, I got, yeah. And and I got here. I still didn't really believe it was true. Um, ten months later, oh. I'm starting to believe it's true. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just fun. It's just fun. Yeah, I love being here. Yeah. How long do you think you're gonna be here, Des? At this moment in time, I'm still going with forever. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's go. That sounds like an endorsement to me. Let's go back to Paul here. Thanks, Jess. That's great. Paul, as we're kind of coming in for a landing here, just tell us a few little anecdotal stories. What are some of the highlights of what what gives you satisfaction? What makes your day and and reaffirms that what you're doing is helping you accomplish what your vision is? Just give us a couple, two or three. Des may be one of them right there. Uh, what do you think? I I think hearing Des talk about his intent to be here forever um, fills my soul. Um, I I think that there's other people here that kind of say things similar. Um, I, I enjoy hearing from the boots when they say that this is the most soul building thing that they've ever done. Uh, I, I, I can, I like to hear that all the time. Uh, I, I kind of feel like in 2004, one of the things, and, and maybe Jan, you could tell me if you, if your analysis is similar, I feel like permaculture was regarded by many as a bit of a dirty word. Um, that it had uh, a bit of a darkness to the word permaculture. Like there was a lot of ugliness in permaculture. And I kind of feel like I set out to say, no, permaculture is a very good thing. It's a design science. And, uh, I, uh, and so with permies.com, uh, we, we have such strict moderation that we, we, uh, uh, keep it hyper focused on the good stuff and talking about what's, what, how to, how to, build, how to move forward, how how to grow, things of that nature. And then when the negative Nellies come, we just delete all of that. I think that today permaculture is a far more positive word. And I and I I choose to believe, and I could be wrong, but I like to believe that I played a major role in that. And uh with the effort of permis.com, with the number of people that we've touched with it, we've made a lot of difference. And then as for where we're going, I think that here I like the idea that someday with our natural building efforts and our permaculture polycultures on Hugel culture, that we will have somebody, there will be a day, probably six years in the future, somebody will show up with stage four cancer and in a week they'll be cancer free. I 
I like to imagine that we're going to accomplish that. And I know that already 90% of the people that are listening to this are thinking that's bullshit. But I'm talking to the 10% that are like, mm-hmm, he's going to do it. He's, and I'm going to go there. So that's one of the many things. Um, we talked earlier about how community has problems. Uh, a lot of the recipes right now for intentional community are failing. So um, we're all about experimentation. We've got experiments on, on community. And I'm hoping that those will be a success. But, of course, <laughs> community is something that takes years even if you're experimenting, it's going to take decades. And so, but we're working on it. And I hope that we'll be uh, some degree of successful. In fact, you're, Jan, you're in Eugene, Oregon. I went to Lost Valley many years ago. Lost mm-hmm. Valley is getting better and getting better every year. But when I was there 13 years ago, 14 years ago, um, I did exit interviews on the people that were leaving. And uh, hardly anybody had been there for more than two years. And I, I interviewed people that were leaving, and they'd been there for not quite two years. And, um, and it's like, these systems need to get better. We need to come up with better recipes for intentional community, Absolutely. for Americans, Absolutely. for Americans. Yeah. yeah. I've done a number of conversations with people involved with intentional communities, L.A. Eco Village, East Blair Housing Co-op here in Eugene, Enright Ridge in Cincinnati. I think Eco Villages absolutely need to be in some form a a huge part of the kind of the kind of future that will fit within what planet earth can sustain but yeah eco villages and and they they are challenging absolutely and so the challenging part as we all know and fear is drama and it's like how do you how do you grab hold of that drama knob and turn it down to being one-tenth of what we see in most of our intentional communities. And uh, uh, so that's been our hyper-focus. I mean, Des and I have talked about it quite a few times, as well as uh, several of the other people that are living here now. Um, and I, I, think we've, I think we're on a good track right now, but really the way to test it is to go five years. So when Des has been here five years, it's like, you know, that's proof that it's working. Um and we've already got one other guy that's been here six years. Uh, we, we really need to keep our experiments going. But it's, it's, it, it, of course, has its challenges. But I think we're getting better and better and better every year. We have a hyper-focus on reducing resentments and all the different ways that they can crop up. Um, so, but it's, it's an experiment. We're experimenting on human beings. <laughs> some people might object to that. Uh, and, but I think that there's been some beautiful people that have come that are willing to be participants in this experiment. And it's been, I don't know, soul building. It's been good. It's been, I'm so glad we're doing it. It's, it's just yeah, and, and sharing it with the wider world also. True. I mean, yeah, that's, that's how you reach millions, hundreds of millions and billions. So I've, at this point in time, I think I've reached almost 200 million people with one thing or another. Oh. Um, and I, and I hope, I wish, I wish, I wish that many people had, have read my book. But, uh, I, at this time, the book is doing quite well. Uh, about 30,000 people have bought the book. Um, which is pretty good. I think we're in the 99th percentile of books. <laughs> but I kind of wish it was closer to like 100 million or so rather than 30,000. Yeah, well, I will I'll add to your number. Okay. <laughs> Paul, final thoughts. Um live large. Uh I um we were talking earlier about heat. I want to say rocket mass heater, wafati, um I do think uh focus on that carbon footprint but but, but first off, live large. Live a live your most luxuriant life, and then save the planet. That without sacrificing any luxury whatsoever. I think that's what I want to. That's what I want to tell people. Well, that's a lot to think about. So, well, Paul Wheaton and Des appreciate very much your sharing time with us today. You've got an awesome amount of uh, experience and knowledge and, and wisdom, I'll add, as well, for the, the overall huge project for humans to evolve towards a preferred future. Yeah, Thanks can for I just add one thing? 
Yes, yes. Uh, so Paul said, I'm quoting, experimenting with, uh, experimenting on people, but I haven't been experimented on yet. <laughs> I, be- I believe that I'm experimenting with Paul. Um, and then secondly, if there's anyone interested in perhaps joining boot camp, there's a thread about um, how I think people um, would do the best uh, is to come empty uh, no expectations. That's it. Sounds like a uh, an invitation to me. Okay. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts. 